It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, you know what we need in the middle of a global pandemic? We need billionaire baseball owners and millionaire baseball players fighting over money. That's what we need. That, that's a brilliant move. I remember the great baseball strike of 1994, how it really made you want to be a baseball fan even more intensely than perhaps you have been. Well, we're at it again. The baseball owners have locked out the players. <laughs> There's a work stoppage. First time, 25 years. Just because the collective bargaining agreement expired and they couldn't agree on a new deal. Now, given that we're in December, you may not care very much. And I think the strategy clearly is the owners and, you know, the commissioner are like, well, let's do this now and then we'll settle it before spring training, and so the season won't be affected. But, you know, sometimes that doesn't work, and these things drag on. It's like, there's so much money sloshing around this sport. Like It's just a question of how much richer people are going to get. I, I'm sorry, I have little sympathy for the people who own the teams, and I haven't, I haven't dug into, you know, who's right and who's wrong, on the details, whatever. It's just like, work it out. This is not the time to be doing this. It was never a good time, but especially now, people have much more important things to worry about. Uh, Speaking of brinksmanship, uh, I happened to see my colleague Chad Pergram on Fox last night. I was waiting to go on myself. Um, Say he thought there was a 60% chance we're going to have a government shutdown at midnight tomorrow. I'm not sure I agree with that. Looking at what you know, the various congressional leaders, McConnell and others have been saying, I think they'll find a way not to shut down the government. I think anybody actually wants to shut down the government. You know, Congress has a way of doing these short-term extensions. Okay, we can't agree right now, but let's keep the government funded until Christmas Eve because that'll be a great uh, way to head into the holiday. Um, at the same time, they need a bill. And there is no bill right now in the House. And, you know, it's typical congressional sound and fury leading to not very much. I don't think I can remember a case where somebody, in effect, had to denounce their own book. But Mark Meadows kind of coming close to this. As you probably know, there's been this huge explosion over the former White House chief of staff and former congressman writing this book that obviously is about the guy he worked for. It's called The Chief's Chief. And he reveals in the book that Donald Trump had a positive test for COVID-19 three days before the first presidential debate with Joe Biden. And as I've already mentioned, you know, uh, Trump's family was there. They weren't wearing masks. Uh, Trump has this positive result. He goes to the debate. They don't say anything about it. When the White House spokespeople are asked about it, they kind of dodge or don't give a straight answer or can't get a straight answer themselves. And so that potentially puts Biden at risk. Chris Wallace at risk is the moderator. Um, and anybody else who the former president came into contact with. And it wasn't just at the debate. It was at a rally. It was meeting with Gold Star families and, and all of that. So um, when this hit the fan, so to speak, after The Guardian got hold of an expert, excerpt, uh, Trump put out a statement saying this was fake news. Well... Mark Meadows went on Newsmax yesterday, and he agrees with Trump. He says, if you actually read the book, the context of it, this, that story outlined a false 
positive. Literally, he had a test, had two other tests after that, showed that he didn't have COVID during the debate. And yet, you know the way the media wants it to spin it is certainly to be as negative about Donald Trump as they possibly can while giving Joe Biden a pass. Now, it is a little muddled with the multiple tests, but here's the thing. Um, The commission was never told about the positive result, the Commission on Presidential Debates. Um, one of the co-chairmen was quoted yesterday as saying, had we known this, we would have stopped it. We would not have gone forward with the first presidential debate. Secondly, it's not clear if the then president got the test and it showed that he had COVID and then he got another test or maybe another two tests, possibly more accurate kind of tests or he didn't have it. There's one undisputed fact here. Three days after the debate, I think it's three days, a couple days after the debate, (laughs) the White House announces that, in fact, Donald Trump has COVID-19. And he gets flown uh, over to Walter Reed. And he's in the hospital, and he gets pretty sick. So that would suggest that he did have COVID. Now, could you say, well, he didn't have it on the day of the debate, but then he did have it a couple days later, even the false positive... I don't know. As I say, it's not crystal clear. But what is crystal clear is that the Trump White House never leveled with the public about this. We didn't know about any of these tests. All we knew is one day, suddenly Trump's going to the hospital. um, And he's got COVID. And then there's the question of where he got it from. But there's also a question of, you know, other people he came into contact with. Chris Christie, Hope Hicks, you know, all of whom developed COVID. Was it at that White House, uh, what turned out to be a super spreader event? Anyway, all fascinating. Um, And yet it's coming out now, you know, when he says fake news, this is not some sources tell uh, the Daily Bugle (laughs) Trump had COVID earlier than he acknowledged. This is Mark Meadows. All right. Meanwhile, another departure from the office of Kamala Harris, Simone Sanders, who is the senior advisor and the chief spokeswoman for the vice president, says she's leaving at the end of the year. This is the second major departure from that office. There was also another communications person. Uh, If you're wondering whether this has anything to do with all the bad press that Kamala Harris is is getting, the answer is yes. These things are not a coincidence. There's a shakeup. New people will be coming in and trying to, you know, uh, turn her image around in the second year of her vice presidency. All right, story number one. Uh, Biden will give a speech today or going over to NIH, and he will talk about all of these steps he's taking to battle Omicron. Um, among those steps, more than 150 million Americans who have private health insurance will be able to get, or the, so the White House says, at-home coronavirus tests reimbursed by their insurers. So it will be free to you. And one of the problems is the money, and the other problem is just the availability of the tests. Also, international travelers, people coming in from other countries, or Americans going abroad and coming back, will be required to show proof of a negative um, COVID test taken the day before they come back to the U.S., Now, that means if you're in some other country and they can't get the test within 24 hours or they can't get the results, they can't come home under this rule or be delayed. So this could have a real ripple effect. 
But look, obviously, the White House, like any White House, is trying to get out in front of this thing. Even though when I say this thing, you know, the media, you know, first confirmed case in California. Oh, my God. Well, of course, I think there's about 30 countries now where the uh, Omicron variant has been detected. And there'll be a whole lot more. We've seen this movie before. We went through this at the very beginning of the pandemic. Uh, this one seems to spread like wildfire. What we don't know is how deadly it is. And I don't think we'll have the answer to that. But now, just the coverage is just, you know, multiple front page stories in the major papers, covered every hour. And, and again, it's this tightrope that I've talked about. We need to cover this. People want to know. It's going to potentially affect the economy. It's already had a real hit on the stock market. Um, and yet, the sheer volume of the coverage suggests that Omicron is this incredibly deadly thing. Well, look, if you're fully vaccinated, as I guess 60% of the country is, you know, you're feeling like, oh, you know, at least I'm safe. Even if I get COVID, it'll be mild. I won't have to go to the hospital and my life won't be in danger. Well, when Anthony Fauci himself says, I, I you know, the vaccines probably will have some effect on this Omicron, but I don't know that for sure. Well, it's a little bit scary. So Biden is also now going to call on employers to provide paid time off for employees to get their booster shots. I don't think that's what's preventing people from getting boosters. I mean, some people have gotten them. Other people haven't gotten around to them. Maybe they don't think it's as important. A new effort to launch hundreds of vaccination clinics around the country. They don't want people to have to wait. New York Times saying that Biden administration has relied heavily on vaccination as a strategy, too heavily in the view of some experts who've been saying that Tests and mask wearing are also essential to containing the spread of the virus. Um, so look, I, you know, we're all just sick and tired of dealing with this. Every time it looks like it might be ending, it's not. Now we have Omicron. If Omicron is somehow neutralized, there'll be another variant down the road. I mean, I think we're all coming to the sobering realization that we may not be done with the variants of coronavirus for a long time to come. Um, and there are these mutations. And by the way, there's an interesting uh, tweet uh, from journalist James Surowiecki, who says, this is a good example of how Fauci can't win. He, you know, he's been all over TV. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, said it was possible we might need annual boosters, but, quote, the honest answer is we don't know what's going to be required. So he was acknowledging uncertainty and offering possible outcomes. And it still generates scare headlines. And he links to a headline in the Daily Mail. Fauci warns Americans might need to get COVID booster every year. And every year is in all caps. Well, first of all, Fauci didn't say that. He said, we don't know. He didn't say it was possible. He said it was possible. He also didn't say it was happening or likely. Secondly, let's say that that's true. Let's say it turns out we need to get COVID boosters every year. How is that different from getting a flu shot every year? How is that different from your kids needing immunizations and not being able to attend school unless they get chicken pox and measles uh, vaccines and so forth? I mean, it just doesn't sound that onerous to have to get the shot once a year. They don't last forever. So what? I don't see that as a cause for panic, but more importantly, that's not what Fauci says. And yet, that, that's where the media come in. Oh, my God, they didn't rule out this. They didn't rule out that. They didn't rule out lockdowns. They didn't rule out the meteor hitting the planet. Isn't uh, NASA or um, the Space Defense Force uh, practicing now to shoot down a meteorite? 
case that becomes necessary. All right. Uh, interesting, the National Review's take on this is that we're in back in the, in the same old debate about whether we need a new wave of restrictions, uh, additional testing, will there be new quarantine requirements? Not clear how that's enforced. President Biden, see, this is just what I was saying, I'm reading from the National Review, has said that more lockdowns were off the table for now, which means they are not, in fact, off the table. So, you know, if you say it's off the table, what's the shape of the table? How big is the table? How long is the table going to last? New York Governor Kathy Hochul has already declared a state of emergency having to do with uh, Omicron and saying she may limit non-urgent hospital procedures. Well, you want to make sure there are enough ICU beds, right? While there are some early signs, says National Review, that Omicron results in mild in this, there's certainly not much to go on. Fauci has assured us that within two weeks we'll have more information on how transmissible it is and whether the current vaccines work. Of course, it'd be preferable if the variant turned out to be mild and blunted by our current vaccines. But this whole discussion, says National Review, rests on a fundamentally flawed premise. The idea that we need to be waiting with bated breath for the results of current Omicron studies to determine whether we can go on with our lives. In reality, the Omicron variant demonstrates that COVID-19 is not going to disappear anytime soon. point I made a couple of minutes ago. We should recalibrate based on that assumption. I, I do think it's true. You know, localities may decide to bring back mask mandates. Uh, we're always going to be urging the people who aren't vaccinated to get those shots. But it's just going to go on indefinitely. And we all have to, you know, and I'm talking here about politicians, media people, and everybody that, that you know. we got to get away from the hair on fire thing. You know, we're not in the situation that we were in 2020 where there's deadly virus was killing a lot of people and there were no vaccines. Unfortunately, the deadly virus is still killing a lot of people, about 900 a day on average right now in the United States. Um, There are about 80,000 plus new cases uh, in the United States, but some of those are people who are vaccinated and they're going to be mild. Others are people who are unvaccinated. And unfortunately, I keep reading about this or that person who was a vaccine skeptic, you know, who had some notoriety at a show or something. Um, dying. And it's every single case is a tragedy. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Anyway, let's move on now to number two, and that is all of the reporting, commentary, analysis about yesterday's Supreme Court oral arguments on the Mississippi uh, abortion case. That's this little Mississippi law would ban abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Right now, the national standard is about 22 weeks. You know, it's all this sort of scientific argument about when a a fetus is considered viable. But the much larger issue here, of course, is whether the court will overturn Roe v. Wade, as the Mississippi authorities are asking. So just about everybody looking at this, uh, this will not come as a shock, given the the 6-3 majority on SCOTUS, says it looks like the Mississippi law will be upheld, which would be, you know, the first time in a very long time that the Supreme Court has backed not just questions about, you know, access to clinics and that sort of thing, but a major limiting. Now, how do we know this? We know this from the questions that the justices asked. And there were at least six justices, yes, the six conservative justices, um, who were saying things along the lines of, 
um, indicating that they were comfortable with these new Mississippi restrictions. So Brett Kavanaugh, who's getting so much attention because at his confirmation hearings, uh, which everybody remembers because of the drama surrounding Christine Blasey Ford, but he was asked a lot about Roe, and he said then that Roe, he regarded Roe as a settled precedent. And that's sort of code for, you know, I'm not just going to go take my seat on the court and throw out uh, something that was decided by the court more than 50 years ago. But Kavanaugh is asking a lawyer for Mississippi, you're arguing the Constitution is silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion? In other words, the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states and perhaps Congress to resolve in a democratic process? Well, that sounds pretty much like the states should get to decide. Now, the three liberal justices uh, obviously are completely and totally against any revisiting of Roe, and Sonia Sotomayor said, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? If people actually believe it's all political, how will we survive? And that's being probably the most quoted thing of the whole uh, oral arguments, which went on for a couple of hours. Now, I got to say, you know, very strong feelings on both sides of this issue. There always have been. There are people who think Roe is an abomination. There are people who think, you know, we need to protect the woman's right to choose, regardless of people's personal feelings about abortion. But, you know, we go every time a Republican or Democratic president nominates somebody to the high court, you know, they go before the Senate and there's always this, well, I can't say how I'd rule in a specific case, but certainly my personal feelings and ideology would not enter into it. And yet, you know, uh, it's not shocking that the three Trump appointees, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, seem very likely to, at the very least, chip away at abortion rights, which, you know, would reflect the fact that they were uh, nominated by Donald Trump. And just as the Democratic nominees are, are feel very strong the other way. Now, everybody looks to John Roberts because, you know, he's a conservative justice, but he's an incrementalist. He doesn't like to do sweeping, let's overturn under the doctrine of stare decisis, something that has been settled law for a long time. So he kept trying to bring it back to just the Mississippi law. The thing that is an issue before us today is 15 weeks, he said. In other words, the court could just say, okay, we uphold the Mississippi law and we have nothing to say further about Roe v. Wade or we just leave that for another day. Uh, Robert said, if you think the issue is one of choice, that women should have a choice to terminate their pregnancy, that supposes that there is a point at which they've had the fair choice, opportunity to choose. And why would 15 weeks be an inappropriate line? But the other conservative justices weren't really buying uh, Roberts's more cautious approach. Alito and Gorsuch asked a series of questions suggesting that they didn't see any half measures here. So that's where we are. We won't know the answer to this until June, probably, right in the middle of the midterm elections, which brings me to this Washington Post piece about the political impact of where it at least appears the Supreme Court is heading. Uh, Democrats immediately signaled that they would aim to make abortion rights a central focus in next year's midterm elections. I mean, you could see this being like a neutron bomb if suddenly there's a major pro-life ruling in terms of the Dems want to motivate their base, get their voters out. 
to try to, in their view, protect the, the remaining right to choose so far as that exists. I mean, this could end up, if you had no row, you'd have states, you'd have more liberal states that protected abortion rights, and you'd have a whole lot of conservative states that would not allow abortion. Um, here's Democratic Senator Patty Murray quoted as saying, this is an attack on women to make their own health care decisions, their families, it's up to them. To have politicians decide, to me, is just frightening. And I expect a lot of voters would react to that. But here's Republican Senator Rick Scott. He's the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. He kind of played it down. He says, look, Republican voters are talking about inflation. They're talking about the border. They're talking about the Afghanistan debacle. They're talking about parental involvement in education. If you look at the polls and what people are caring about, that's what they're focused on. It's a little bit of a dilemma for Republicans because, as I said yesterday, while there was a Fox News poll showing, I believe the figure was 40% of self-identified Republicans would like to see Roe thrown out, but 53% wanted it to remain, did not think that abortion should be made entirely illegal. So if your base is split along those lines, uh, then if suddenly, I mean, if Roe were to go, and I'm not sure there won't be a more muddled, you know, certain justices agreeing or joining concurrent opinions on on certain things, uh, then this is a real wild card, what the court decides to do. Um, And we will find that out probably next June, a few months before the midterm elections. One Biden advisor speaking on the condition of anonymity said abortion was an issue that could move swing voters, particularly suburban women, back to the Democrats' corner. Well, we shall see. Number three, uh, I was watching Good Morning America this morning, uh, teasing more of George Stephanopoulos' interview with Alec Baldwin, and it's a primetime special tonight on ABC. And Baldwin, you know, just in the snippets that were aired today, very emotional as he talked about the fatal shooting on the set of Rust in New Mexico. And he said something that is just absolutely mind-blowing. Alec Baldwin said, I didn't pull the trigger. I would never point a gun at anyone and pull the trigger at them. Never. Now, to me, this raises the question of why is this the first time he's saying this? I mean, he's the focal point as the actor, the celebrity, and a producer on this movie, which resulted in this terrible tragedy of the killing of the accidental shoot, fatal shooting of Helena Hutchins. Why is Baldwin just telling us this now? But there was somebody else interviewed by ABC, who corroborated Baldwin's version. So he was asked, well, how did a live round end up on the set? And what Baldwin said was, I have no idea. Someone put a live bullet in a gun that wasn't even supposed to be on our property. And then he talked about how much Helena was loved and admired by everybody, and he started crying. Even now, he said, I find it hard to believe. It doesn't seem real to me. Somebody put a live bullet in a gun. Stephanopoulos asked him, this has to be the worst thing that ever happened to you. And he says, yeah. He just said, yep, yep, yep. Now, there may be plenty of reason to criticize Alec Baldwin. I'm not letting him off the hook here. But this, this is a man who looks devastated by the fact that he at least was holding a gun that ended up uh, killing his friend and crew member. 
Um, now, that, of course, raises all kinds of questions. What, what, how did the bullet leave the chamber? Was it some kind of misfire? I mean, there's a lot of unanswered stuff here, but uh, you can see more of that Baldwin interview if you watch the ABC, and I'm sure they'll replay the clips uh, all day. All right, I mentioned there's a lot of trials going on, so let's catch you up on a couple of them. Number four, Ghislaine Maxwell, the longtime friend, partner, and an enabler of the odious Jeffrey Epstein. So it seemed, you know, knowing about their relationship and knowing about past women who have said, and sometimes young girls who have said, while they were underage, that Elaine, you know, won their trust and brought them to Epstein and, you know, basically recruited them for Epstein's sexual abuse and pedophilia. But in yesterday's testimony, um, the first accuser to take the stand, who was just identified as Jane, you know, ended up crying. Uh, A defense attorney for Maxwell was asking questions that cast doubt on the story that Jane had testified to the day before, that she came from a troubled family and she needed money, and that left her vulnerable to abuse by Jeffrey Epstein. She's now an actress. So at one point, she was asked, well, is this all, you know, just acting on your part? And Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyer kind of suggested that this was a performance motivated by financial gain. So a prosecutor got to do the redirect and asked Jane what it meant to be awarded $5 million from a fund set up to compensate victims of Epstein's sexual exploitation. And she said, I wish I would never have received that money in the first place. This is part of what she started crying. Hopefully this just puts an end to it and I can move on with my life. There are more accusers who are supposed to um, testify today. And so here's the thing. This is obviously a star witness, and there's some contradiction about Jane actually came from a supportive family that did have some money. So if questions obviously are raised about the credibility of these witnesses, by the way, testifying about events that happened many years ago, um, that could undermine the prosecution's case. So it reminds me a little bit, and look, I, 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 what Ghislaine Maxwell did as the one-time girlfriend, partner, and I believe enabler of Jeffrey Epstein is just reprehensible. But then, and this came up, you know, in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, there's the legal question. Is there enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to convict her in a criminal case that the prosecution can bring into a courtroom? Um, Oh, so here's part of this cross-examination. Because originally she had told a different story. Two years later, you now remember that Ghislaine called your home to make appointments? Right, said Jane. That memory has come back to you in the past two years? Memory is not linear, she said. But there's an ex-boyfriend, I mean, this all gets very tangled, who said that Jane had told him that she had a godfather, an uncle, a family-friendly type person who helped her mom pay the bills. She said it wasn't free. Matt said that uh, Jane had said that Epstein had an adult female friend who made her feel comfortable spending time with the financier, who's obviously Epstein. So that's where that trial stands. Number five, Jussie Smollett. Okay, I do not understand why this is even a trial. Why would Jussie Smollett want to go through with this? Because the testimony yesterday just absolutely blew up his entire defense. In my view, I'm not a juror. I'm not sitting in the courtroom. Maybe there are subtleties and complexities here that I don't understand. But 
Jesse Smollett, who remember back uh, uh, three years ago, two in the morning, suddenly gets attacked and claims it was, you know, MAGA supporting Trump lovers who beat him up. And this was reported around the world as this horrible racially charged incident, except now he's being accused of staging this hoax. So there were these two brothers, and one of them testified yesterday. Abimbola Osendero. And he testified that he and his brother took part in a hoax at the request of Jesse Smollett, who showed him this threatening letter that he had received, and that Smollett arranged a meeting with him, Osendero says, saying he needed help on the low. At the meeting, they discussed how the television studio behind Empire wasn't taking this threat, this death threat letter, seriously. Okay, here's the quote, the testimony from Asandero. He, Jesse Smollett, said he wanted me to beat him up. I looked puzzled, and then he explained he wanted me to fake beat him up. He wanted me to tussle and throw him to the ground and give him a bruise while my brother, Ola, would pour bleach on him and put a rope around him, and then we would run away. Said they were good friends. He viewed Smollett as his big brother. I, this is just amazing. It's just incredible. I mean, it's not that this hasn't been reported before, but here's this guy in court. This is the attacker. And the brothers, as I've mentioned, have told police that the day before the attack, uh, Jesse was driving them around this neighborhood of Chicago where he lived and showing him, them where he wanted the attack to take place. Gave him 100 bucks to buy supplies for the attack, including ski masks, the rope, and the red hat to indicate that the attackers were MAGA supporters. And then, this is a new twist, uh, Asandero testified that Smollett had instructed him to send him a condolence text the next morning after this had been reported by the press. Bruh, say it ain't true, he texted him. I'm praying for a speedy recovery. Now, these guys also got $3,500 from Smollett, but the defense is saying, oh, this wasn't for to stage a fake attack. It was to help with some physical training for a music video. I, okay, whatever. Now, here, I feel pretty comfortable saying that that testimony alone, I think, proves the prosecution's case. We shall see. I mean, he could just end up getting probation, but this has gotten so much attention. And why he just didn't admit it and get on with his life is impossible for me to understand. And he is very lucky that there are no cameras in that courtroom. Well, once again, thanks for listening. Once again, I would appreciate it if you would subscribe or, you know, Apple iTunes is a good place to do it. But you can also get this podcast on your Amazon device. We'll see everybody tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.